David Abramovich, one of the UK's up-and-coming entrepreneurial stars, the founder of Grind Coffee, one of the fastest-growing coffee companies in the UK, is going to be on the podcast today sharing his knowledge with you. He's built a £20 million turnover business in a very short period of time, just raised £22 million to take his brand global, and you don't want to miss today's podcast. The learnings are phenomenal. Our mission is to help 10 million people start and grow a business for free. We want nothing from you. In Pep Talk, we interview industry-leading experts from around the world who share actionable know-how and life lessons. That's why we're excited to partner with GoDaddy to power up Pep Talk. I've been using GoDaddy for years and would promote them on this podcast even if they didn't sponsor us. You can use their free website builder and start your online business at no cost and even get help these days with naming your business. For 40% off GoDaddy tools, click the link in the podcast notes below and use the code GDXPEPTALK. David, welcome to the podcast. Perhaps you could start off by telling us, if people meet you for the first time at dinner and you're explaining who you are and what you do, share with us how you do that. I usually just tell them I'm a barista uh, and I make coffee for a living. But um, yeah, there's a little bit, little bit more to it than that. Um, so in 2011, I took over my dad's old mobile phone shop and turned it into a coffee shop as a bit of fun, as a bit of a side project around some other things that I was doing at the time. Um, that then kind of grew legs of its own. You know, we called the first one Shoreditch Grind. And over the next 10 years, that evolved into yeah, a hospitality business called Grind with, with cafes, bars and restaurants and, and other stuff. Uh, across London, you know, locations across London. And then in 2019, we decided to start making um, consumer products, you know, consumer coffee products for people to drink at home. Um, most importantly, our compostable pods, which fit in Nespresso machines. And without really knowing, obviously, what was around the corner in 2020, that became a fairly pivotal moment. And, um, you, you know, the sales of our coffee pods grew, grew extraordinarily through through lockdown we completed some large fundraising last year and we kind of emerged from the pandemic as primarily a, a direct-to-consumer coffee pod company with uh, with an amazing high street presence as well you're very humble as well because i, I for my u.s listeners um the way I, I i look at your business you've got seven of the best restaurants and cafes in london without doubt in my view uh, you only have to look at the ratings to see that thank you and you've um, in the last year, built a brand new division of that business under the restrictions of COVID, which is hitting a 10 million turnover. So the coffee shop business is a 10 million turnover. You've got 20 million pound, not dollar, my US friends, it's a little bit more, 20 million pound business, and you're just getting started. You just raise a huge amount of money to go all at this and, and, and scale this brand. And it's it's incredibly exciting. And, and I think today what I want for the audience to learn from you, one of the main things, I think, is how to win against big brands. So much of our audience audience listen to or hear these big brands dominating the market and you're literally uh, going to uh, and are already uh, breaking through and so I want to I want to learn from you today I want my audience to learn from you today how have you done that now you you explain your progression there and how you've kind of moved now into the um, b2c business I guess and the pod business and um, there was one thing there the patent dropped didn't it for Nespresso was that was that something you noticed yeah, that's and then right took advantage of that happened quite a long time ago yeah they lost they lost an antitrust case you know in the same way that it's not fair to make 
printers and flood the market with very cheap printers and then sell very expensive ink that only you can buy. You know, it was a similar kind of anti-competitive practice case that uh, that, that Nestle lost, um, you know, more than a decade ago now. Yeah, and it's uh, it's 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 kind of exciting, isn't it? To that's another example of going against the big boys because I'm sure they're fighting hard to make sure that it's AirPod their pods that get used in all machines. But just taking a step back before we go and share with people how to build beat, beat big brands, um, talk to us a little bit about your upbringing. You know, do you think you you know your your father was clearly an entrepreneur? You know, um, I want to know what that was like, and, and I also want to understand a little bit about like why you didn't keep the first store a phone shop. Uh, I feel like that's probably probably quite a good business. What made you change? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I, I was very fortunate. You know, my parents were kind of working class, but but sent me to an amazing school. Um, and, and they kind of emerged from the East End of London, kind of, you know, did did well, done good, as they say, in East London. Um, and yeah, my dad was very entrepreneurial. Um, he had market stalls selling clothes, which... He imported from Italy in, in like the, the late 70s and early 80s because, you know, that was what you did at the time to go and get the kind of latest amazing fashion. You didn't go to shops. You went to market stores for people who were bringing it over from places like Italy. He laid, That evolved into like actual physical clothes shops from market stores. And then kind of in the early to mid 80s, around the time I was born, um, he uh, decided to leave clothes and move into mobile phones. And at the time that was, you know, Beverly Hills cop style, big things like that with a wire on them and an aerial on the back of the car. You know, it really was the early days. But I think, you know, he thought mobile phones were going to be big. And, I, you know, and he was uh, correct in that analysis, it's fair to say. And look, I think what I learned from him was that you don't have to do as you're told always. I think that would probably be the main thing. You know, it's okay to go against the, cra- the grain. You don't have to be an employee, turn up, say yes, sir, no, sir, three bags full and then leave again. You know, you can do your own thing and you can and you can make your own way. And I think probably it was that attitude and that approach to life, which is probably the thing that I learned the most from him. And then I think counterbalancing that nicely was uh, my mum, who was, you know, who is a bit more sensible and a bit more of a completer finisher, if you believe in the in Myers-Briggs or something it's called, I think, um, you, you know, some, that it's important to finish what you start and it's important to be a bit more diligent and a bit more, you know, I think it's fair to say that my dad could sometimes be a little bit of a good at starting, not so good at finishing. So I think, you know, hopefully I've got a nice background, of, uh, a nice mix of, of those two things. But, you know, I think one thing I always say is that, you know, when I look back, I went to this, you know, I went to this amazing school, but it was, you know, basically you were channeled into one of about five things. You know, it was, here's the five to 10 universities it's acceptable for you to go to. And here's the 10 to 15 careers it's acceptable for you to have. And no one talked once about starting your own business. And I have, I have promised that at some point I'm going to go back to the school and I'm going to do, you know, I'm doing a few things with UCL as well, which was you know, University College London, where I went to uni, about kind of encouraging entrepreneurship so I think it was a real shame that we were encouraged so much to just be a management consultant or a lawyer or a doctor or something else and not have our eyes open to actually do you know what you could have a lot of fun and create a lot of value and and do something really good if, if you go and do something for yourself 
It's so insane, isn't it? I, I, I feel like the question at school is still being asked wrong. It's not what will you be when you grow up, but what problem will you solve? And it seems to me that, um, you know, that system definitely need, needs fixing and, and having someone like yourself, even just going into the schools you, you came from and, and sharing that, I think will actually make a huge difference, create a butterfly effect because it needs to change. But how come you didn't fall into the, the trap? How come you didn't fall into that system? Uh, I did actually. I, I I went and did a did an internship at one of the very large banks. I actually did two internship programs at, at the at, at you know a couple of the big a couple of the big banks. Um, and look, they were they were great, and I was treated really really well and given amazing opportunities, and I learned a lot. But I also learned very very quickly that I did not want to go and work for a massive corporate organisation. Actually, that was. Um, you know, that was really valuable as an exercise in figuring out what I don't want. And, and then what happened in parallel to that, um, a friend of mine, you know, my best mate from school started uh, started helping out a couple of guys who had a really early stage business. And um, he then brought me in and we became a founding team of four. This was a technology business in the insurance and mediation space. Um, you know, something I knew nothing about, but I was excited about being part of a small business, you, you know, and I was quite into tech and I knew enough that we could be helpful. And we became a founding team of four, learned a lot very fast. And we went and raised a lot of money from a venture capital firm very early. So that kind of became my full-time job during my third year of uni. Um, and then I did that, you know, I was working on that business for about five years or so. And then in the end, I, I, I took over the phone shop and turned it into Shoreditch Grind ran both of those companies for about two years before leaving the other business and going full-time to focus on grind. And was the phone business no longer working or did you just personally, it didn't fit with what you wanted to do? What was the reason for the change? Well, yeah, unfortunately, my, my, dad got, um, my dad got sick unexpectedly and then he, he passed away when I was 25. So that was kind of the catalyst for, for taking over the business. You know, and I think obviously as he was trying to get better, he didn't focus on that business. So it wasn't in particularly great shape, um, but equally, you, you know, the selling of mobile phones had gone from a bit of a, a uh, had gone from a specialist sale to a commodity sale. You know, everyone by that point just wanted an iPhone in a box as cheaply and as easily as possible. So, kind of the the space for a the, the space for B two B phone management, I think, was just a, a space which was kind of dying and being consolidated. So look, I think it was the right time to, to exit that. And I, I certainly didn't explore keeping that business. But I loved the building. You, you know, anyone who knows the building, it's a it's a small circular building right on, like literally on the edge of Old Street Roundabout. I used to work in there when it was a phone shop upstairs repairing, you know, Nokia 8210s and for people that remember those. And you know, the original Nokia phones when Nokia ruled the world. And, you know, I did that and sold phone covers and stuff downstairs as a summer job when I was 13 and 14, you know. And that was, had a huge amount of sentimental value, that building. So I definitely wanted to keep it. And also, you know, this was 2011. The Olympics were coming in 2012 to East London. Shoreditch was the place to be. You know, the, the centre of London was being pulled east. You could feel it. And Old Street had gone from, this kind of weird roundabout city fringe thing to, you know, this is Old Street. This is Silicon Roundabout now. There are there are unicorns and even decacorns being born here by guys on 
on laptops, this is a really exciting place to be. So, you know, I think a big part of what we, of our, of any success that we've had has been, you know, we were right place, right time, and very, very lucky to start with such an amazing building on the roundabout that, you know, obviously we still have now. I've spent a lot of time in that cafe myself. And uh, for again, for people listening overseas, you should go Google it. There's some amazing energy there too. It's, um, yeah, if, again, in the US, people know Silicon Valley very well. Uh, Shoreditch is becoming a Silicon Roundabout, we call it, and your business sits on that roundabout, <laughs> your yeah. first your first store. So there's some real interesting energy around all of that. I just want to take a moment to thank Taylor Brands for sponsoring this podcast. Have you ever been told you can easily start a business that will make money while you sleep, only to realize it takes a ton of work to get a business started? Taylor Brands make starting a business easy. With its AI-powered platform, you can get your business a logo, social media designs, printed merchandise, and so much more, all in just a few clicks. That's why I love Taylor Brands. Whatever your idea is, you can make it look legit in a day and actually start selling through the Taylor Brands platform. For 40% off your first order, check out the links in the podcast notes below and use the code PEP. Now, let's get back to the podcast. Just one thing I want to quickly go back to before we move to um, how to big brands um, I, I I think what you mentioned there I don't want my audience to miss is around how almost your uh, parents family life is like a business you mentioned Maya Briggs there but the dynamics between the, your your mum and dad very important to have those you know different people around you maybe with the same moral code I, I guess um, I wonder you know, if you, that's translated into how you run your business today because I know you started this business grind with a partner and so I'm sure you were probably bringing someone in who covered your weaknesses. Yeah, so yeah, I set up the first store with um, a friend from from Melbourne, a DJ called Kaz, and you know he's not involved on a day to day basis now, but he he helped set up the first couple of stores. And what he bought was the thing that I was missing, which was a deep knowledge and understanding of the independent coffee scene. You, you know, flat white culture. Well, if you ask an Australian, they'll say flat white culture comes from Melbourne. If you ask a uh, someone from New Zealand, they'll say it comes from there, but you know it certainly comes from that part of the world. And you, you know, growing up in that, as Kaz did, immersed in this cafe culture that is so prevalent there. You, you know, he just he moved here to uh, when he signed for Universal Records, um, and he literally just could not get his head around the lack of cafes and the lack of this 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 culture just and that everyone went to starbucks or costa or somewhere like that and ordered these big cups of coffee with various other things in them and, and he just didn't understand that and he you know he had a very clear vision of like you know this is the equipment we should use this is how it should taste this is the this is the cups we should use this is like and he was much clearer on that at the time than i was i kind of understood the opportunity and i'd seen that around the world but i didn't have such clear views and he actually drove me mad at the beginning because you know we we, we arranged to have someone else roast coffee for us and brand it up ourselves because you know from the beginning this was about building a brand and even if it was only going to be one store it was going to still be a brand and we didn't want to use we didn't want to promote someone else's coffee brand so we found someone to work with to roast it and bag it with our logo on it. But, you know, the amount of time Kaz spent on that, I, I just, it was driving me mad. I was like, Kaz, we need to open. We've got no money. Like we, we, in fact, we passed having no money left six months ago. We are beyond running on fumes. But he was absolutely right to insist that 
we got it right and we got the training correct and we got the product correct before we opened. And, you know, he, he absolutely bought, bought that to the, you know, to the table in the beginning. And he had a great eye for, um, you know, how the store should look and, and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it was very complimentary. One of the reasons I think you're a great leader is, is and, and I've been following you for quite a few years, but one of the things I really love is what you've just done there is that you've admitted you were wrong about something, you know, like you wanted to get it open. I think a lot of entrepreneurs listening will have that urge, but you, you know, you realized that someone else was right to say, let's get this foundation right. Cause from this foundation that was built back then you can build the pod business and the home delivery product and the, the, the customer loyalty. And I think this is a really important thing for people not to miss, right? Being able to also accept that um, you might have a business instinct, but listening to people that know something uh, that you don't is important. Yeah, absolutely. Like I've never understood. The whole point of my job has always been to employ people who are better at their individual skill set than, than I am. And what's, what's so difficult in the early days is, you know, in the early days, I was CEO and finance director and HR director and head of operations and head of training and head of digital and all these other things that we now, you know, have someone in each of those roles and many more. What's difficult at the start is that you have to be a generalist and you have to do all of those roles because obviously you don't have the resources to um, to employ people to do all of these things. But what's, um, what, what's great as you go through is you do get the resources and, and you can actually employ these experts to, to take on all of these roles. And I've never found it difficult to admit that obviously our operations director is going to be a better operations director than I ever was. Like that's the whole point, isn't it? To get to the point where you can employ these experts. And then what you have to do as, as an organization grows and grows and grows. And, you know, we're 300 people or so now you have to be responsible for the culture and you have to be responsible for, um, you know, occasionally making some big decisions with the help of your board about, you know, are we going to do this? Are we going to do that? Are we going to decide? You have to be able to make it and, and back yourself on those decisions. And then you have to be able to get all of these people who are experts at, and point them all in the same direction because, you know, they can run a lot faster and a lot harder together collectively than you ever could on your own. But you have to make sure that everyone's going in the same direction and that's not that's not always easy particularly in a business as we have which is now kind of split into into two halves yeah no and i think but again i don't want the audience to miss this very important insight i think a lot of people do actually stop their business from growing and competing with the big boys because they are the the stumbling block they they if you're a generalist you actually can get quite good at things and you then don't realize that you're not necessarily the best at things and i think that's what stops people's businesses growing they get in their own way um self-sabotage i think is how my wife describes it but um but look i wanted to i want i wanted to talk a little bit about i get into the detail a little bit uh, uh, about how you're how you're managing to build this brand. Um, I, I was in Greenwich recently and, and the queues to get into your place were around the block and then Starbucks was pretty much empty. So you're beating the big boys here in the UK. You're planning to expand into the US. How do you think you're going to compete against mainstream brands like Starbucks uh, as you scale? And what does Grind have that they don't? Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, Starbucks is a phenomenal business and has got scale, you know, beyond all imagination. Um, I think in certain parts of the world, people are increasingly looking for an alternative. You know, and I think it's important to know as well that we do breakfast, lunch, dinner, coffee, and cocktails, whereas, you know, somewhere like 
one, the big coffee chains are focused just on on one product. But look, I, you know, as we go into the US, we are very much launching there as a as a D to C brand, primarily, you know, a direct to consumer brand. I almost all of our efforts will be focused on getting to people to buy our coffee and shipping it to them uh, to enjoy at home. Obviously, we'll support that with with physical activity. So we partnered with Soho House Group, who are you know, if anyone hasn't heard of them, they are. Uh, they have about 50 or 60 members clubs around the world that are very large clubs with, you know, usually with swimming pools on the roof and lots of hotel rooms. And they're probably, for me, the leading hospitality brand in the world in terms of, you know, the coolest, most desirable, executing at a very, very high standard. So, so we supply, we partner with them globally to supply coffee to all of those locations, which is, you know, which is, which is an amazing, an amazing deal for us. And, it gets their members, you know, they have 130,000 members or so. It gets them all exposed to grind coffee because they drink it inside, served in a cup. Or when they stay in the hotels, they have our coffee pods in the room. So, you know, so we're already in the U.S. serving uh, serving customers grind coffee physically via our partnership with, with Soa House, which is spread right across the U.S. And, you know, we, we started to partner with a few other hotels. I think we're in the line, Cigaro Hotels, a few others. And we're in a couple of kind of premium um, supermarkets there as well. Like uh, Air One Markets in, in California would be a good example of that. So we're starting to kind of dip our toe in physically. And then, yeah, we hope to open a few stores here and there over the next couple of years. But, you know, we're certainly there will be flagship stores in key cities where you can come and get a flat wire and you can come and buy some Nespresso pods and, and, and you know, ha- have a go on our coffee machine that you can buy for use at home. So there'll be brand building kind of flagship stores we're very much not going for a let's build thousands of stores in the u.s and take on take on starbucks because you know that would be a huge undertaking and that's not that's not really what we're about now we're about you know letting people make sustainable amazing coffee at home it's a fascinating uh, process i think do you think that when businesses are listening to this podcast or founders of companies b2b sales and b2b businesses are a little bit underrated like you, you've got this b2c business a lot of people dream of having that you know a popular coffee shop you know like that's to a lot of people that's that's the dream right but this b2b side as you and and, and then you're saying b2c which is interesting because you know they, they, they kind of feed each other don't they you know if, if, if you look at brands like oatly how they've managed to rise up they they basically gave it to all the coffee shops right and they built a b2b business that then built a b2c business so there seems to be some 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 almost like um business secret there about building a, you know you're aligning with a brand like soho house which you respect you feel has you have common brand dna and that lifts you both up right yeah look i think i think the lines between you know b to b to b and d to c you know we call it direct to consumer or business to consumer whatever but you know i think the lines between b to b and, and b to c if you like are, are forever blurring particularly now our homes are our offices, particularly, you know, even even if it's for one day a week, two days a week, you know, it's now a mainstream thing that our homes are our offices. So, of course, the lines are going to continue to blur even more. And look, the people making decisions in businesses are just consumers at the end of the day. So, you, you know, you might be making a decision about, you know, if we're going to stop grind or not because you work at a hotel or because you work at a premium supermarket, but you are you're making that decision because you like the product or not. And that same decision-making process applies when you're choosing 
what to consume yourself as well. So, you know, we see these outlets as a great way to just introduce people to the brand. You know, for me, once normally once what happens is that once someone gets one of our pink coffee tins, which there is one here, um, and tries our, you know, Nespresso compatible pods, they rarely go back to buying pods from from somewhere else. So, you know, the challenge for us is to get as many people as possible trying our coffee and believing that they should trust us with their coffee at home because we do a good job. And so we demonstrate that through the product and then also through doing it in real life. Because I think one of the things, you know, you've seen a huge boom in, in D2C brands, but a lot of these brands are just people buying stuff off Alibaba in China, repackaging it into a nice a nice packet and then putting it through people's letterboxes. And look, that's, you know, that's great and it has its place and a lot of people have done a great job of doing that. But it doesn't necessarily inspire the customer to believe in you know the authenticity of the brand or the pedigree of the brand and i think you know we have real authenticity you know we've been doing this for for 11 years now on the high street we serve some of the world's most demanding customers you know busy londoners in shoreditch in soho in covent garden in place london bridge you know we serve a million plus cups of coffee to them in their hands in real life you know, every year. And so, you know, it takes some doing to do that. It's not easy at, at scale. And so we think we, we think that's a really valuable story that we want to tell people, you know, this is why you should choose Grind at Home because we can also do it in real life. And we really do roast all of our coffee ourselves in Bermondsey, you know, and here's a video of it. So the physical stuff has a real value in the digital world, even if you don't actually get to visit it, just by being able to see it and being bought into the story. I love it. I didn't ask you this in advance, but I wonder if you'd be up for this. Um, I'd love it if you could give one hour mentorship to one of our listeners. And for the listeners to win it, they need to take a picture of themselves having a coffee and tag grind and tag the Purposeful Project. Are you up for that? I would have said yes, but I mean, I definitely can't say no now, can I? <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank, thanks, Dave. That would be amazing. I think um, your mentorship would mean a lot to our listeners. So if you'd like to buy some grind coffee, I could totally personally recommend it. I literally have uh, every single day a, a few cups and it makes me feel good. You should get the links below uh, and help yourself. And um, David, I want to thank you for taking time to share your story and uh, keeping an inspiration. Thanks for leading the charge in, 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 in the UK and now the rest of the world showing what entrepreneurs here in the uk can do no problem thank you very much for having me and i'll um i'll, I'll set you up a, i'll set you up a code for your listeners as well with a, a nice introduction re-offer perfect that's amazing we always like a, a good deal on coffee why not especially when it's as good as the coffee you produce thanks david thanks for listening to pep talk we hope you enjoyed it don't forget to follow The Purposeful Project on all our social media channels where we're giving away even more free business secrets and entrepreneurial value. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor GoDaddy for powering this podcast. From naming a business to buying a domain name to building your website for free, GoDaddy has you covered. For 40% off GoDaddy tools, click the link in the podcast note below and use the code GDXPEPTALK. See you next time, entrepreneurs. And remember, you're not alone.